Ingrid had gone ahead of me for our vacation. We had a timeshare, and I had some responsibilities, so I was catching up with her, and she had everything set up. I was catching the van you pay ahead of time to go from the airport to the resort we were staying at in Mexico. Got in the van, and there were immediately, you're hoping it's going to be a van that only has four people in it. There were 12 of us, and there were suitcases stacked everywhere, and there's always one person in the van who becomes the tour director. This guy is introducing himself to people that don't know him, and he's interesting. I'm thinking, I'm on vacation. I do people stuff all the time, but I'm going to be nice to him. And so we pass names and all of that. And finally, he says, so where are you from? I said, I'm from Connecticut. And uh, I said, so where in Canada are you from? And he kind of looked at me. He says, is it that obvious? I said, well, I worked in, uh, in Africa with some people from Saskatchewan, and you have a certain rhythm the way you speak, and I can tell you're from Canada. And he goes, I'm actually from Saskatchewan. So now he had someone to talk with him. Everybody else in the van is sliding away. <laughs> so, so what do you do in Connecticut? And this is when it gets weird as a pastor. So I said, well, I'm in leadership development. Well, what do you do? Human resources? I said, no, I'm about helping people discover their true identity and move into their calling. And that was enough for him. And I said, so how big is your farm in Saskatchewan? Now he's frozen. He goes, how'd you know I was a farmer? I said, well, I come to Mexico. This is the fourth year in a row. And the only people from your part of Saskatchewan who can afford to come here are the farmers. So I figured you were a farmer. I said, tell me about your farm. What do you farm? And he came alive. The cultivator in him. I said, uh, is this second or third generation? Now his eyes are really big. Third generation. And I said, and are your sons going to take over the farm? And then it got really quiet. Because his son was sitting in front of him in the van. He said, well, no, my kids have moved to the city, and I'm not sure what's going to happen with the farm. In that moment, I re recognize the tension of work. There's this call in us to flourish. This man was flourishing, but there was also an aspect that in his flourishing, he was not completely satisfied because there was something missing in his ability or lack of ability to pass it on to someone that he loved. You know, God's first blessing of us in Scripture is that we would be fruitful and multiply. Your design as a human being is to flourish. That's part of the design. God meant it to be that way. In fact, if you keep reading through Scripture, these words keep coming up. Being fruitful, being successful, being prosperous. Now, we line that up in a very narrow category sometimes. But God's flourishing is our design. In fact, Jesus said, I came to give you life, and not just life, but life abundant. He said, it's to the Father's glory that you bear much fruit. It's right within us. It was in the creative design, but also Jesus redeemed us in the process of giving it back to us. You see, part of God's fruitfulness for us, part of His flourishing, is that He gave us work. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden even to work it and keep it. Cultivation. It's part of our design. Uh, work is not evil. Work is God's gift to us to co-create with Him. 
That's why the psalmist prays this prayer, and I've prayed it over my children for years. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. The psalmist says it twice. But if we're truthful, we have a troubled relationship with our work. Something happened between Genesis 1 and 2 and cultivating and what we experience. And so we need to press in in this series, Theology of Work, what is the source of our trouble? Because we need to find on the other side of it good news that can give us our work back to us. Because when you think about it, the thing that we do most in a week in our waking hours is work. Think of it in two places. We have the vocation of the production of our hands, but we also have the vocation of participating with God in the flourishing of our families and our households. We spend most of our time in those two places, and if there's a troublesome nature in it because of what has happened, we need to explore it, bring it out into the light, and then allow redemption to bring it back to full glory. So let's look a little bit at this passage. Genesis 3, the fall, as we know about And put it, first of all, into context. You have to read this in light of the first four chapters. Uh, Genesis 1 through uh, chapter 2 and verse 3 is what we call creation account 1. And Genesis 2, 3 to the end of that chapter is creation account 2. Now, there weren't two creations. It was two different ways of describing the same event. The first event, God is transcendent. He speaks. He's over it. He's declaring. You feel the awesomeness of God completely out of the universe. The first mover, everything happening. And he declares over human beings, the pinnacle of his creation, Imago Dei, which is his image. The second creation account is far more intimate. It's in some ways God cultivating God's working in the mud. Now, we know that God isn't literally working with mud. He's directing the process, but it shows the intimacy of God in shaping us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And we see his communication with Adam. He's saying, Adam, you now can cultivate with me. You can co-create with me and be a part of this process. So everything is good, and then we get to chapter 3, and there's a screech in the story. The fall. And chapters 3 and 4 go perfectly together because not only do we see the fall, but we see in chapter 4 the results of the fall, everything gets splintered and alienated in our lives. It explains a lot of the toil and pain that we live with in the day-to-day. And Genesis 3 is about the temptation. The temptation is quite simple. Satan comes to us as humanity and begins with the first question, did God really say... Satan rarely comes to you and says, God didn't say. He'll start with this one. Did God really say? Kind of bend the truth a little bit. After the conversation goes a little bit further, then Satan says, well, God didn't tell you the whole story. If you'll just eat of this fruit, do it your own way, you'll be like God. And we as humanity step into that and we agree with that. And as a result, there is a fall, and the condition comes to us with consequences of sin. The most ultimate one here is death. Death is introduced into the whole picture. The second one is that our relationships get splintered. Uh, There's alienation with God. You see it in the text. We could spend a lot of time on that. But there's alienation with one another. There's shame. 
This is the first time humans are aware of nakedness. Now, I was, was reading another author while I was on vacation. It had nothing to do with this sermon, but the author made this point. We're the only creatures on earth that are aware of our nakedness. Isn't that interesting? Other animals aren't aware of their nakedness. They're aware of their vulnerabilities, but they're not aware of their nakedness. Your dog doesn't come up to you in the day when you turns over to have his back rub thinking, oh, don't look at me. But there's shame that comes into us. And right after shame comes our favorite game, blame. Oh, God, it's this woman you gave me. Oh, God, it's Satan who tempted me. Because we like to kick the can down the road a little bit. But something we don't think about is how significantly the fall impacts our work. In fact, it impacts every aspect of it. Look at verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, God's already getting through his blame game, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, the curse has this impact not only in us, but upon the ground. I would like to know what paradise was like before paradise lost. I've often wondered about where did mosquitoes fit in the whole structure before that whole thing? Uh, where are weeds? But now the thistles and the thorns become strong. The ground is so cursed that in Romans 8, it says to this day, even creation groans for the redemption of men and women. So what we're working with is somehow spoiled in some way. But it says in this text that in pain you shall eat. Now, I generally like the ESV translation. I don't like this translation because it almost suggests that there wouldn't be pain in the other work that Adam was doing before. When you work, there's pain involved in it. I like the translation toil. Now work becomes difficult. Now it's no longer satisfying. What used to satisfy us has become mundane and challenging to us. The writer of Ecclesiastes calls after his pursuit of all the things in life that give meaning, he says, work is toilsome and meaningless. And his only conclusion is, so work hard at it while you have time. It's a part of the fall. Proverbs keeps coming up with the idea of the challenge between understanding our work and laziness. We feel this. Wolf says of the curse, the curse after the fall expresses the fact that alienation is inherent to every human experience of work. Okay, so let's make this land now. So how does this land in our work from Monday to Saturday? Uh, there are some dualisms that come to us. One is the dualism of secular and sacred. We've done this really well in America. Uh, you do your sacred on Sunday morning when you come in, but then when you leave Sunday, you go back into the world where you do everything that's secular. That is so unbiblical. Because God gave us work in the beginning, work is something that brings honor to Him and is a place of worship from day to day. Now, this is where you should be going, yes, because this is where you spend most of your life. This is where you get to worship God in unique ways and bring praise to Him. 
One of the other things is we divide out uh, vocation and calling and job and career. And we place these things on different tracks where our work was meant to be a means of responding and participating with God. We get stuck on a track of trying to create something for ourselves rather than recognizing that God has placed us in space to be present as his kingdom representative. Everywhere you work, the blessing is you because you are the kingdom of God presence in that space. When you go there, some of the dualisms that we create are workaholism. I asked this question of the men on the retreat. How many of you are workaholics? And I only put my hand up because I'm a workaholic. I love to work. I love it. Now, I loved being on vacation. That was fun for two weeks, but it took me five days to really start vacationing. Took me that long to stop thinking about the things that I was responsible for in my work. And then with about two days to go on vacation, I started ramping up already in excitement for what I was going to do. So I did experience Sabbath rest in the middle there, but it's complicated. Workaholism comes to us. We can de develop our worth and make work into an idol. Uh, I like this phrase what's a person's net worth? Isn't that an interesting concept? And how many of us then identify with where our net worth is on the scale of where people is? What's your net worth? You are precious because you are a son and daughter of God. There is no net worth apart from that. All the rest is opportunity to steward and to bless. So work gets off base in so many ways. How many of you are, I don't know if you, I won't ask it. I recommend that you read Timothy Keller's Every Good Endeavor because he picks up on some of the ways that work has become idolatry to us. This is the read we've given along with this series. Let me give you just one quote. He says that even when you're in meaningful work and you're satisfied with the quality of your production, at the end of it, you're often bitterly disappointed and plainly bored because it wasn't everything that you expected. I love that quote because it tells me that even when work is going well, there is that tension that I feel that the fall has touched every aspect of my work. So I could keep talking to you from my perspective, but I only work one day a week, so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> so I thought it would be good to hear from some people who have real work. I'm going to invite Adrian and Greg to come up right now. Greg Harch and Adrian Henkes live in the work world are there all the time, and I gave them some early questions last week that I might ask them, but I changed them in the first service, so they're good sports, and so um, they're just going to talk a little bit about how they find the fall landing in their work. So Greg, tell us a little bit about what you do, the basic nature of your work. Sure. Uh, so I work at State Street Global Advisors, and I'm the Chief Risk Officer. And um, when you work, where do you find your most satisfaction, where the image of God comes out for you? I like the concept of being a good steward for our client assets, and I also like leading a team, making sure the team works collaboratively together and solves problems. Yeah. When does the fall come into that team dynamic some? Well, the, the team uh, dynamics can be challenging. When you have a larger team, not everyone's, everyone is pulling in the same direction. Um, there are challenges from budgets. There are challenges from trying to solve people's 
uh, problems, they come to you if you're leading a team with them. And it's not always easy, and sometimes you have to make difficult choices. Um, but I think if you approach it looking that each person is important, that uh, you can usually come to a decision that they understand and you understand. That's good. So when you're in the throes of work and you're trying to honor God, when do you find the fall creep into your own work ethic? Well, I think for me, I view work as sort of, um, it's like a marathon. It's, you're going to be working 30, 40 years in your life, and it's, you have to pace yourself. It's easy to burn out and let work sort of overwhelm your life. So for me, I think the two areas that I have to guard against are first, just working too much. Uh, work never stops. You can work seven days a week, and I have to set boundaries for myself. And certain times I've done better that in my life than others, but it's a constant challenge. Uh, the second area is comparing myself versus others. Mm -hmm. You can always think that that person's career is going faster or that person's earning more money. And so those are two things that I try to guard against. The latter, I think, takes away your, just to you look at your life and you realize you have so many blessings. But if you're focusing on other people, you can always find someone who seems to be you know, doing better. So that's a challenge. Yeah. So what have you found the most helpful to keep worship in your work setting? I think that um, I'll start sort of a macro thought is that I try to look at what the purpose, why we're why we exist as a workplace, and we're trying to invest responsibly for our clients' assets. Our clients are often pensioners who have retirement plans, and so I think if you take a look at perspective that there's hundreds of thousands of people that are relying on your, you, I think it, it gives purpose to what you're doing. And then I think respect to every day, before I go to work, on the way to work, I usually recite several verses. I usually do the 23rd Psalm, the fruits of the Spirit, and just a simple thought that God is with me, he is helping me, and he's guiding me. That's great. Thanks, Greg. Now, Adrian has worked in the corporate world, and now she's a household technician, which is commonly known as a stay-at-home mom. And so, Adrian, why don't you talk about your work you did before and how you transitioned into the work you're doing now and some of the process of that. Okay. So I had been working in the commodities and banking industries for close to 12 years prior to being a stay-at-home mom. And I knew four and a half years ago when my daughter was born that I wanted to stay at home with her. But because of various financial factors, it wouldn't have been a prudent choice at the time. God had a plan for my family. And fortunately, when she was two and a half years old, the company I was working for got sold. And my entire division got laid off. And um, while everyone was frantically searching for another job, I felt completely at peace um, to not look for another job. And I knew that I felt God telling me that I would enter a new season of my life. So just some mid-testimony theologizing for you. Being laid off is not always from Satan. That can be God's gift to you to redirect you to a new calling. So when you think about your work in the corporate world and what brought satisfaction and delight there, um, what were those things and how do they transfer to the world you're in now? So when I was working in the business world, I had to use a lot of analytical and problem-solving skills. I worked in a very volatile, fast-paced industry. Um, I had to make a lot of quick decisions on my feet and I enjoyed the thrill that the job let me. And fortunately, with parenting, those skills can be transferred over. <laughs> um, <laughs> Much more volatile. Exactly. Every day is different. I don't know what lies ahead. 
and I'm able to use those problem-solving skills and analytical skills to navigate through the day's challenges. Good. So where do you see the fall leaking into your present work as a stay-at-home mom? So when I was working, I felt validated by positive annual reviews and bonuses. Um, as a working mom it, or a stay-at-home mom. I like working mom. <laughs> it can be a little discouraging when there's no positive affirmation and validation. Um, Would you like Jeff to do a year-end review? As <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> um, there are times when I can't visibly see any growth or change in mm. my work, and um, I've entered into a mundane and dormant period. Um, I've realized, though, that you know, God is at work in us through uh, these different seasons of our lives, and we need to go through winter to get to spring. That's great. So what have you found that's helpful to make your work worship uh, when you're around the house and caring for your family at this time? I think the key for me was finding a group of Christian women that share my day-to-day -day challenges and, and who will pray for me. Um, I'm a part of a mother's heart, and I've met a lot of wonderful women there who provide insight and encouragement to me. I'm also a part of a weekly devotional time, and I'm able to meditate with, uh, on scripture and prayer with a group of women. That's great. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Graham. Yeah. I asked Adrian in the first service, are you ever tempted to say, back when I used to work? She said, no. It's never come to me, but there is that dichotomy. We tend to think about work as primarily in an office or on a factory floor and those kinds of things, but the work God has given us is the calling that he's given to us to be fruitful both in the community and in our households, and all is worship unto him. So what's my so what? This morning, I'm just going to get right to it. If the fall... And the curse of the fall has touched every aspect of our work that puts us in a troublesome relationship. How much more the power of the cross to give it back to us in Jesus' name? But that means you and I will have to be proactive theologians and walk with a kingdom perspective into our work. We need to reclaim it. We need to reclaim it as sacred space. We need to take hold of it. Let me give you three ideas that you can carry with you. First one is this. Think of your work as partnering with God. What do I mean by that? Begin every day acknowledging that you are not going alone into that space, but that He is the one who is going before you. He is the one who guarantees your success. He's the one who will give you failure when He knows it's better for you. He's the one that will be a part of every aspect of it as long as you invite him in. God loves to go where he's invited. So before you begin your work, stop, whether it's at the desk or over the sink or with your toolbox or in the classroom and acknowledge, say, God, I acknowledge your presence. In fact, I recognize you've gone before me. Then spend the rest of your day on a prayer walk. There's nothing that comes your way where God is not there. Nothing. And it allows you to have an eye towards heaven 
so that you would acknowledge his presence, but also an eye towards your work so that you would do excellence in it. And so partner with him. Second principle, as you work, follow his pattern. Pastor Nathan picked this up in, in the sermon last week. His pattern is to work for six days and then to Sabbath. Stop working seven days. Stop it. I'm going to say this as nicely as I can as a pastor. Stop it. God commanded that to you for your good. You don't need that seventh day to be fruitful. You need God to be fruitful. He's put it in you so that you would thrive and flourish. Do it regularly, and because some of your work is so great, do it in vacation Sabbath as well. I'm going to make a challenge to some of you, especially in the finance world. Will you go on your next vacation and not have your phone on your ear every moment that you're on the beach? I'm serious. Because when you do that, you're fooling yourself to say you're being responsible. You're putting yourself in the place of God. No business needs you that much. And if they need you that much, take your, your package and leave. Because you need your life. And God wants you to flourish in your life. So please, Sabbath. It's good. As I walked in here and I saw Danny sitting here, I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing? He should be out there plowing driveways in a minute. I hope my driveway's clear. Not yet. But this is a great example. Yeah, it will get done. We need to be responsible, but we need to rest. And then finally, bring praise into your, worship, your work at all time. Doxology. Doxology isn't just what happens when we bring the fruit of our labor, or our tithes and our offerings and our sacrificial giving to God. It happens every day when we give Him praise in the midst of our work. When we say, God, you provided all the opportunities for me to arrive at this spot. It is your goodness to me. You're the one who has blessed me. See, as you take on these attitudes and habits, they'll become a part of your life. Uh, we live in a society today that says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. In that, they have this kind of idea that I'm being, I'm not doing. Can I tell you something? I've done a lot of doing to become a kingdom ambassador who's being. You have to do the same things over and over and over until they become ingrained in who you are. It's kind of funny that God had me preach this sermon after two weeks in Mexico. <laughs> had a lot of observations of workers staying on this resort where our timeshare was. 4,000 or so people. You could tell different people's work ethic very easily. Some, buenos dias, and they touch their heart, and you can see they mean it. You can see the ones that are hoping that you don't look at them so they don't have to do it. And as I watched people working, I was wondering about what is it that drives them? The guys that I was especially interested in were the guys who had rakes every morning who took away the seaweed so that we would have a clean beach. I looked at them and I, I wanted to talk with them. I really did. I wished my Spanish was better because I wanted to find out 
what drives you in this? Does this seem odd to you? Is this delightful? Is it just the money you're able to take home to care for, which may be enough for that moment? But what's going on? I, I'm sitting there thinking, I have such meaningful work. doesn't mean that there's not struggle in my work. doesn't mean there's not toil. But there are times I find my work very mundane and difficult to get through, and it's meaningful. And I was thinking about these guys. And while I was thinking about them, I came across this section in a book by uh, Andy Crouch called Strong and Weak. He talks about us being human beings that are flourishing, and he mentions the case of a woman by the name of Isabel that he heard interviewed at a conference in California. Let me just read this paragraph so you get the context. Isabel, poised and impeccably dressed, joined Kyle on the stage. She gave a brief summary of her story in proficient Spanish-inflected English. Born in the city of Vina del Mar in Chile, trained and credentialed there as a family counselor. A few years before, she had immigrated to the United States with her husband, who was American, waiting the birth of their son. They settled in Santa Barbara to be near family members, but Isabel discovered that her professional credentials from Chile were not recognized in the United States, and her husband struggled to find steady work. Still, Isabel said gratefully she had eventually been able to find full-time work. So Kyle, the interviewer, asked her, and what is that work? She said proudly, I clean houses. The Santa Barbara Hills are full of spacious homes and nearly everyone employs a Hispanic woman as a cleaner. That was the work that Isabel had found and could speak about in theological terms. The interviewer asked her, how do you see your work reflecting God's work? This is her direct quote. If you look in the book of Genesis in the beginning, the world is in darkness. There is no order. God is a God of order. He orders every single life, changes it from life uh, changes that light from darkness to light in Jesus. And that is my motivation as I work. Everything I do is from God, not from man. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, and we are to do the same. Be a servant with love. If I am cleaning a toilet, well, that is something that needs to be done to the order of the world uh, that I'm living in and to wash other people's feet. There is no sadness about that. It's a joy. The greatest example of servanthood in my life is the Holy Spirit because he guides me. I listen to his voice and I say, yes, sir. Talk about rich theology. A Trinitarian view of work. You know what it tells me in conclusion? It's not so much what we've been called to do. It's why we do it and how we do it. May all our work be to the glory of God. Amen.